do the cops even use RPGs or something like it? No, no. Just I'm gonna ignore that you even asked me that. Dark secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark secret place with Brian Suits on KFI. KFI AM six forty more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian sits in here live until midnight with a uh, a full plate, a whole lot of Korean this hour and some uh, Israel Iran this hour, and also next hour. Uh, this is where the news cycle is. That it just just a few days ago, Netanyahu with that that live presentation. Uh, with conclusive proof that the Iranians have been lying about having a, a nuclear weapons program, which which should vacate the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action because they lied before they ever put their signature on that. They lied about having not having a nuclear weapons program, though everybody knew they had one, which is why it was really confusing. But we'll talk about that next hour and whether or not the Netanyahu presentation was an actual kosher nothing burger. Or if it was actually a something burger, and uh, also uh, a little later on, American special forces on the ground in Yemen helping the Saudis uh, fight the uh, find Houthi uh, ballistic missiles. Uh, wow, how 2015 of them! So uh, we'll get to that uh, as well. <clears throat> and an old Cold War base in a in a very very cold place, but a very nice place is going to be reopening. I'll tell you about that. Next hour. Um, and uh, so let me just say, I guess what uh, the Washington Examiner is already reporting it. And uh, it, it seems almost like a fate accompli. But uh, uh, Senator John McCain's family are as as much as announcing that he only has a few days. They're already it's already uh, come out that President Trump will not be welcome at John McCain's funeral and that uh, George W. Bush will speak. Barack Obama will speak. Uh, of course, they were his opponents, weren't they? George W. Bush in the primary with John McCain in 2000, and then Barack Obama in the uh, the actual uh, as John McCain as the the nominee in 2008. So uh, they will eulogize the senator who is still alive, by the way. Um, and uh, I, I would just want to take this moment to remind everyone a, a couple things. And in, in uh, uh, I, I used to, if you used to listen to uh, America Now down the hall on uh, KEIB on the Patriot, uh, Megan McCain did the show America Now, which is tape delayed uh, nine to noon here, probably nine to midnight here in LA. And as you know, for about two years, I I, bas- I filled in pretty much every Friday or every other Friday, and so uh, Megan and I. Megan McCain and I uh, became collaborators on her show and became friends, and uh, and I and then I had uh, I had John McCain on. I was filling in for uh, John and Ken on. Uh, I want to say it was Veterans Day, two thousand sixteen, uh, or or Memorial Day. I'm sorry, Memorial Day, two thousand sixteen. I was filling in for John and Ken, and uh, had John McCain on talking about veterans things and all this. And I've always been very. In the times that I've met him, for instance, face-to-face up in Seattle when I did uh, the morning show on KVI up there, uh, he, he was always a very gracious guy. And I always was, was very blunt with him 
about the fact that I disagreed with a lot of things that he did as Senator McCain and, and even candidate McCain. But John McCain, the American, I had nothing but a, a amazing admiration for and, and unending respect, as, as anyone should. And I think if, unless you've read his books uh, or you know his story, then, then you don't know the, the uh, key moment in this man's life happened when he was a POW um, after he was— uh, shot down in 1967, he was badly injured in the ejection from his aircraft. He was mistreated by the North Vietnamese, um, denied proper medical care. Uh, his his injuries, uh, you know, the, the the reason he can't lift his right arm over his head is because of what happened when he was in his 20s. Um, you know, breaking bones that were set poorly uh, by the North Vietnamese. Um, and then the moment happened that crystallizes why everyone should, no matter what you think of John McCain as a Republican or a Democrat, whoever you are, but what should crystallize your admiration for this guy is that as a POW lying in a bed in Hanoi at the Hanoi Hilton, when the North Vietnamese found out who his father was and his father was Admiral John McCain, commander-in-chief of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, when the North Vietnamese found out who he was, they offered him early release. Um, they, they called it, uh, they called it uh, what they call sympathetic release or something like that. They offered him early release. And there's a code of conduct when you are captured in the U.S. military. Some of it has changed. The part about Torture, giving into torture and all that has, has changed a little bit. But one thing that has not changed is that it's first in, first out. That you will not accept parole, as they say, or, uh, or <clears throat> lenient treatment by the enemy, nor will you accept early release. And there was an American who had been there since 1965, uh, Everett Alvarez, who was the first guy shot down. And by 1967, there were several hundred Americans. And the North Vietnamese said to McCain, because they wanted the propaganda victory, they wanted to show that these accusations by the Pentagon, that the North Vietnamese were mistreating American POWs uh, and torturing them on a regular basis and things like that, that uh, that, that was false. And look what we're doing. We're releasing this uh, poor, stricken young man who's still in his 20s and still vibrant, and we're going to release him. And they said, McCain, we're going to release you. And he said, I don't want it. And they said, no, 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 we're going to release you. And he said, I won't take it. I won't accept it. I can't jump the line. And they said, you're going to die. And even his fellow POWs said, John, do this. We will forgive you if you do this. And so he had a pass from a chain of command. And by the way, even as a POW, there's still a chain of command. A senior ranking guy takes command of, of, the, of his fellow prisoners. That's how it works. And he was given a green light. You know, you're going to die. Get out. He said no. And that is to his everlasting credit. So whoever you are, whatever problem you have with John McCain, and, and like I say, I've been honest uh, with his family. I've got, I, 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 I differ with the senator in regards to torture. But when it comes to whether or not John McCain should be admired 
and his uh, that moment in his life should be taught in elementary school. There's absolutely no question. What he did was astounding. Knowing full well that he may be dead in one week, he refused early release, and that was astounding. Uh, it's astounding, and it inspires. Uh, it's inspired every generation of of warrior in, in American uniform ever since then. He is the gold standard for how you behave when captured by the enemy. <clears throat> um, the d- just to lay the cards on the table. Uh, when when John McCain came out against torture in any and all forms in the war on terror, he was doing it from a far different perspective. Because McCain was beaten very badly after he, he by the way, he got better, but he, he never overcame the orthopedic issues with his arms. The North Vietnamese uh, began routinely beating him. They were not, when he was shot down, he really didn't have any actionable intelligence that they could have tortured out of him. But they didn't question him on that anyway. It was several years after he was shot down that his worst mistreatment occurred. He, he literally knew nothing about the prosecution of the war. He didn't know what carriers were off North Vietnam. He knew, knew nothing about that. But the North Vietnamese were, by that point, uh, not interested in information. They were just beating American prisoners because they were misbehaving or they weren't behaving in accordance with what the North Vietnamese wanted. So McCain's worst mistreatment uh, came not because he had information that they wanted, but because he was just misbehaving. Now, the, the difference is, I know scenarios that have happened on battlefields in the war on terror where men have been caught red-handed burying IEDs that will kill Americans. And they know where other IEDs are buried. And so do you take the guy back and give him a Kool-Aid and a Twinkie and just hope he'll draw a map? Or do you tell him, you convince, you do something right then and there to convince him that it's in his immediate interest to reveal where the other IEDs are buried. Well, that's my perspective. And so that's where I differed from John McCain. But uh, I told him that. And he said, we'll agree to disagree. And, and there you go. Many, many say that he, uh, he was maybe too much of a gentleman in 2008. But if, if, that is a, if that's a vice, then I, I suppose he's a guy who will go to his grave with that accusation that maybe he, was, was a, he didn't go low with Barack Obama. And if he lost because of that, then uh, he's willing to, uh, to, uh, to take that. But uh, there's absolutely no doubt he's an honorable man. And so uh, that's, that's what's going on uh, this weekend. That's the, uh, the word about Senator John McCain, who, no matter what, a great American, no matter what way you slice it. We'll be back right after this. What is happening between uh, the U.S. and North Korea? The president says there's a date and a place and a time. It sounds like love. Swipe right, Kim Jong-un. We're going to maybe talk about your nukes right after this. It is uh, KFI AM640. Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits in here until midnight. More stimulating talk. It is Dark Secret Place here. Brian in here live. Talking about the world melting down. And I, uh, I'm not going to be talking about Cinco de Mayo. Or the battle that it's about or any of that. Because you've heard the crap out of that all day long. Uh, I just have to navigate the checkpoints on the way home. That's why it's just so great. Working till midnight on a Saturday when that Saturday every seven years happens to be Cinco de Mayo. 
So uh, I just want to thank everyone here at iHeart Media Management for that. So there's that. Um, all right. So President Trump said that the date and location has been determined for the face-to-face meeting with Kim Jong-un and himself, which is, in case you're wondering, um, you are living in really extraordinary times when a president of the United States is going to meet face-to-face with the dictator, the god king of North Korea, to discuss their nuclear arsenal, which they surely have. And this was thought impossible. Um, it was never really considered by Obama or George W. Bush. George W. Bush, of course, naming North Korea as one of the three points of the axis of evil, which more than likely accelerated the North Korean nuclear program more than anything else. Having seen how easily Saddam Hussein was toppled, Having, having seen how easily the United States overthrew the Taliban in Afghanistan, never mind the ongoing quagmire in Afghanistan, we overthrew the Taliban as if that was that hard, but nevertheless we did it on the other side of the world. And then, oh, by the way, we overthrew Saddam Hussein, who supposedly had uh, the second or third largest, most effective army in, in the Middle East uh, right after the Egyptians. But what the hell? Two American divisions did it in about three weeks, overthrew the guy. So this made Kim Jong-il, the middle Kim, this made him sit up and take notice. And he realized, good Lord, this George W. Bush guy might be crazy. He's fighting two wars at once. And did you just see what they did with Saddam Hussein? I mean, he had a huge army. He had a huge land army, a bunch of tanks. Service to air missiles, the whole thing. He, he couldn't do F all uh, against two American, one Marine division, one Army division. Good, good Lord. The Americans have that kind of combat power on Hawaii, on Okinawa and Hawaii. Never mind continental United States. The Americans could do that to me. And so did Kim Jong-il say, all right, I want to talk. No, he didn't. He talked to his scientists and engineers, and he said, we better have a nuclear test successful in the next three years. And he did. It worked. Meanwhile, other side of the world, in Libya, Muammar Gaddafi was a guy who went to the International Atomic Energy Agency, and he, he, was, he was scared poopless. He said, good Lord, I just saw what Bush did. Please come to Libya. I'm giving up my nuclear program. I want to declare it. I want you guys to inspect it and certify me nuclear-free. And the IAEA came to Libya, and they were pretty shocked because Gaddafi had a fairly advanced nuclear program. But he gave it up because he saw what Bush did. So in the meantime, Bush could not have talked to Kim Jong-il. He could, he, he, if he could have, evidently it never happened. He never picked up the phone and said, listen, Iraq is off the list. Iraq is now off the menu. They're not on the axis of evil. The axis of evil is now down to two countries. And we're running out of access. Iran and you. Do you want to do anything about it? But he, they never did. And the North Koreans never called Washington and said, oh, how do we get off the axis of evil? Because Kim Jong-il determined that the only way forward for the North Korean people was as a nuclear power. So he set about doing that. His son has succeeded. His, his son uh, has simultaneously completed the, uh, the, the warhead program 
and the delivery program, the missile program. It's no good doing one without the other. So he has succeeded. Um, but what's made him come to the table? What, what's the difference between this guy and Obama? And again, you know, my cards are on the table. If you listen to me, you know that I'm not a huge fan of Trump. Uh, as a man, I'm not a huge fan of him. But as a wild card, I knew this immediately, that a, a guy, a neophyte like him, coming into the world's most powerful position would scare the living crap out of some of the bad actors. Number one on that list is North Korea. And Trump, even though all of the, the, the Ivy Leaguers and everyone, all the PhDs and, uh, and on all the former Obama leg humpers um, said that it was reckless, we were going to get in a nuclear war and the whole thing. Trump clearly speaks a language that Kim Jong-un understands because there, at this point there's no denying the fact that the progress made between the U.S. and North Korea has happened because the North Koreans are scared crapless. They have seen um, what the U.S. can do, and they've also seen the, uh, the measures that we've taken in practicing a war scenario. For the past year, there have been permanently positioned B-1s, B-1Bs, and regular B-1. B-1Bs, by the way, are not nuclear capable. They, they go to Afghanistan and they drop smart munitions, but they're not nuke bombers. B-1s are nuke bombers. B-52s are nuke bombers. And yes, B-2s are nuke bombers. And they have seen the United States move forward a lot of assets, including U.S. Navy assets, to the Western Pacific to do nothing but practice coordinating a, a d massive strike on North Korea that would destroy all their infrastructure, which is, by the way, a real threat. In North Korea, you do that. And, and it, it has a real effect on, on the elites as well as everyone else. So clearly, this is the reason the guy's at the table. But there's a reason number two that he's at the table, and it's that he already has the nukes. So um, spoiler alert, what are they going to be talking about? Is this really honestly going to be a discussion about uh, North Korea, quote, denuclearizing, close quote? Uh, because why would they? And you've heard me talk about this before, but we're now down to the short strokes. Um, and then also stepping back, the North Korea discussions are a dress rehearsal for something else. And I'll tell you what that is as well. But how are these going to go? How are they going to come down? I'll tell you about it right after this. It is The Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight live on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. <laughs> More stimulating talk. It is uh, the Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here until midnight. And Cinco de Mayo 2018. That is another hour and a half to go. Um, and so, and by, and by the way, what a big night for Uber. Uh, so, yeah, don't be stupid. And, and uh, don't be the person in front of me at the checkpoint who does something stupid. You're just going to delay me from driving through in and out. So, uh, the upcoming summit, in all likelihood, is going to be at... Uh, at Treaty Village in Panmunjom, the same place where Kim Jong-un crossed the, the very actual border between North Korea and South Korea and met President Moon. Um, that's logical because security is already in place. Um, it, it, both sides know every inch of that place. There's no need to do any sort of advanced party recon or anything like that. Uh, the South Koreans and the United States Army, U.S. Forces Korea, us fork, um, we know that place. We control that half. The North Koreans control their half. It was it was that simple two months ago. 
and, and then you've heard this talk about, well, Singapore, Switzerland, you know what? No, 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 no. no there's, there's no country that wants that headache. They, they, they don't want hundreds of Americans descending on, on their city, and they certainly don't want hundreds of North Koreans descending on Singapore um, because part of the problem is they can't control anything there. They're looking at billboards and things like that, and they can't control those. So it's logical they're going to do it in South Korea. Um, and in, in all likelihood, uh, it will be late afternoon Pacific time when this happens, kind of like when uh, President Moon met Kim Jong-un. That was 8.30 in the morning, Korea time. And by the way, as of today, or pardon me, as of last night, Korea time, North Korea is now on the South Korean time zone. So they are. So the peninsula is now on one time. Now the the deal was, uh, North Korea was half an hour behind Seoul. They they wanted their own time zone. They absolutely wanted their own time zone. They demanded their own time zone, and so they just said, "Ah, oh, we're getting our own time zone." So that's how they got that. So uh, as of last night, it is, uh, or as of right now, it's two thirty seven p.m. in Seoul. And in North Korea. However, nobody's updated Android or uh, iPhones. So if you add Seoul and Pyongyang to your world clock, you'll there's still uh, uh, Pyongyang is still half an hour behind. But in reality, they're not. They're, it's two thirty seven um, in in both countries. So anyway, it'll happen late in the afternoon, and the uh, North Korean party will be Kim Jong Un uh, again, of course. Uh, and like last time, his sister was there. Uh, Kim, what's her name? I have her name right here. Uh, her name is um, it looks for uh, Kim Yo Jong, uh, who who looks very much like his wife. But she'll be there again. She is uh, her profile is has elevated. She's at his right side now all the time. Um, but what will the talks entail? Trump also said if he doesn't get something satisfactory, he'll walk away. Well, I hope he's really honestly prepared to walk away. Because a member of the South Korean National Security Council, a guy who is from the other party, not from the more liberal progressive party that President Moon is from. And again, President Moon is a former uh, South Korean Army Special Forces guy. Okay, He's not, he's not a squish. The, the guy, uh, was, he was uh, on the DMZ, was part of the guys hunting down the North Korean commandos when that submarine ran aground in the 90s. And for a month, the South Koreans were hunting down these these suicidal commando killers who all uh, the sub crew wound up killing themselves on the sub and all these commandos running around South Korea. So president moon has been in combat and he knows exactly what the North Koreans are capable of. Um, but a member of his national security council was pointing out the obvious, which is why would Kim honestly give up his nuclear arsenal? It's like throwing $100 billion down the drain, and, and not to mention hundreds of thousands of lives. Kim is aware of the deprivations in the countryside of, his, of North Korea. He, he, he knows this. He knows that even in their best year, North Koreans are still starving. And he knows that uh, rather than feeding his people, his, his own father and, him, and he, but mainly his father, diverted money so that they could acquire nuclear weapons. And people starved. They relied on the World Food Program. Uh, and, and remember, the, the World Food Program of the U.S., we had to beg the North Koreans to please let us come in with food. And then if it was the most upside-down, topsy-turvy thing of all time. The North Koreans would sit there and say, well, no. Well, you can't have any American flags on the boxes. Well, there can't be any English lettering. 
Well, it has to say um, from the from the 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 uh, the dear leader Kim Jong Il, and we actually negotiated with them to bring food in. We didn't play hardball and say whatever. You know what? You want your people to starve? They're going to do it. Kim Jong Il didn't want his people to starve, but he played hardball, and so we had to beg him to help his people not starve. And so, the, a South Korean security official is saying, "Do you really honestly think that Kim Jong Un isn't aware of what it took to get those nuclear weapons, and that he would he would this easily trade them away when, in, in all likelihood, these have bought him security? That, so, what does he want out of this? What Kim Jong Un wants out of this, and by the way, just like China, Kim Jong Un doesn't want to reunify." He, he doesn't want to give up power, but he wants North Korea to start acting like South Korea, looking like South Korea. He knows that his raw material, his Korean people in North Korea, are the same Korean people as they are in the South. They're only, on, on average, five inches shorter because of four generations of bad nutrition. But he knows that besides that, there's no reason North Korea can't have a Samsung and an LG and a Hyundai and a Kia and a Daewoo. He knows that. So how does he get that? Well, he needs to start not having to worry about spending all this money on the military. So what does he need out of that? Well, that's why he's serious about a peace treaty. If he has a peace treaty, then guess what? There's no more demilitarized zone. Maybe that turns into a East Germany, West Germany style of border with people allowed to cross. Maybe it does. Maybe he liberalizes his economy and has it resemble the Chinese economy where individual entrepreneurs can pop up and uh, and become rich, and he allows people to be to be rich. Uh, you know, it's ironic. It's the 200th anniversary of the birth of Karl Marx, whose philosophy is responsible for the death, for the murder of more human beings than anything since the plague, the Black Death in medieval times. And he's being celebrated. The Chinese sent a statue of Karl Marx to Trier, his hometown in Germany. And Marxism has killed more people than any other philosophy you care to mention in in human history. And yet the Chinese have Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, one of the world's richest men. Uh, the Night Watchman, who, who founded Asus Computers. <laughs> the guy got together with his buddies, some other engineers, and started a computer company. Marx would have called the guy a capitalist pig. Marx, Marx would, would line Jack Ma up and shoot him. But Kim Jong-un looks at how the Chinese have turned into a dynamic economy, and he says, I can do that. And so that's what he wants out of this. But giving up his nuclear weapons, it's not going to happen. Um, we'll be back in just a second. American Special Forces on the ground in Yemen. Uh, what are they doing there? And how come the New York Times broke the story? And what the hell? That and more coming up. It is Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits back right after this. KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. It is Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits. I should say the Dark Secret Place. Here on uh, KFI, your weekly look at uh, the world melting down and uh, the most downloaded podcast here on KFI, as, as it would turn out. So thanks to all of ye who are listening via the iHeartRadio uh, uh, podcast app, which is a free app. You should have it anyway. You should know that by now. So anyway, um, so the uh, Trump-Kim Jong-un uh, summit probably happening sometime in the next three weeks. Next hour, I'll talk about the Netanyahu PowerPoint brief. Uh, Trump has said that he'll, his decision about whether or not to tear up the Iran nuclear deal is going to happen at or about May 12th, um, which, uh, by the way, uh, and, and, and I'll talk about this next hour, but part of his decision is also a signal to North Korea, which and the signal is um, there is a way that we sign treaties and there's a way that we do not. And we don't just 
do executive orders for treaties, the U.S. Senate has to ratify treaties. It's in the Constitution. So if the North Koreans offer a peace treaty between uh, the, the warring parties, um, and, and it's just North and South Korea, then that would be a separate peace. And we would and then the South Koreans wouldn't want that. Unless we're part of it, the South Koreans wouldn't want that. So even though it was a U.N.-sanctioned action, the North Koreans basically consider that they've been in a state of war with South Korea and the United States. And so in all likelihood, it would be us on one side of the page and North Korea on the other, formally ending the conflict that began in June of 1950 um, the, that we call the Korean War. Uh, and the, the armistice would be done because it would be a peace treaty and, uh, and all that. But if, uh, and that's just one part of a negotiation. The real point of the negotiation is, on, from our standpoint, is to uh, get an end state where we reasonably can be confident that North Korea has denuclearized, that their technology for constructing nuclear weapons has been demobilized or destroyed, that their actual nuclear weapons, that they can they'll account for them, a full accounting, and that they'll allow us to destroy them or they'll do it in place uh, or whatever. That seems pretty far-fetched because, as I say, and as, as my South Korean sources as well as open sources are saying, um, they really can find nothing in it for North Korea. There's nothing the United States can do that would offset the security that North Korea gets from the nuclear weapons. Our, our assurance that we'll never attack them, um, maybe. But after all these sacrifices, they're going to say, well, why take their word for it when we can just keep our nukes? Uh, and so the most likely outcome is that the North Koreans will come up with some number and it'll probably surprise us. They'll, they'll say, we have 42 nuclear weapons. And we'll go, really? Wow, 42. Um, and they'll probably offer to cap their nuclear weapons at five or, or 10 or something like that. And they'll say, you can verify them. You can count them every year, you know, whatever you want. But we're not giving them up. And, and that fulfills the word that the North Koreans used when they said denuclearize. Um, it, it has not been translated or transliterated accurately. Um, so that, that's, so in other words, don't, don't hold out. I, I also sense though, that no matter what happens, Trump's not walking out of that because that looks like we lost. Um, he wants to walk out of there with a win. And so a, that's what a win probably looks like is North Korea with a fixed amount of nuclear weapons. So, uh, there's that. And that, they basically adopt the Israeli posture with nuclear weapons. Of course, we'll talk about this next hour. You all know that Israel is a nuclear power, right? Uh, if you're not a neighbor of Israel, you don't even need to know. But if you're one of Israel's neighbors or you're a couple countries away and you start with I-R-A-N, then you need to know that they have nukes and that there's only one scenario where they would ever use them, and that's if you threaten the existence of Israel. So. Uh, anyway, um, so speaking of the general war between Israel and Iran, um, th the Israelis have stepped up their strikes on specific Iranian targets in Syria. The Iranians have um, standalone bases now. The Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps mans checkpoints and gates, guard towers, and they resupply the Syrian air defense with missiles, Hezbollah, the rest of it. But Syria has a pretty significant base uh, archipelago in, in, pardon me, Iran has a pretty significant base archipelago in Syria. Uh, they'll fly recruits from Afghanistan uh, or Western China, the Uyghurs. They'll fly them to bases in Syria and train them up 
um, to supplement Assad's forces. And the Israeli standpoint on this is these guys are bordering us now. Our border at the Golan Heights now has Iranians on the other side of it. And they are smelling the barn. They feel like this is God placing them there so that there can be a Shia arc, an arc of Shia Islam from Iran through Iraq, through Syria, all the way to the Mediterranean. And that it is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to strike at Israel. And so they are. And Netanyahu's not having any of it. Meanwhile, in the other part of the, uh, the Iran war, uh, in Yemen, the New York Times reports that American special forces are on the ground in Yemen spotting Houthi missiles that they're shooting into Saudi Arabia. The Iranians are the ones who are supplying these to the Houthi rebels. Iranian techs are the ones launching them um, and doing the targeting. And they're also training the Houthis because they want deniability. But ultimately... These are mountain tribesmen. They're very clever guys, uh, but they're going through field schools that the Iranians are teaching them there in Yemen. The Saudis don't have the targeting capability. We happen to be subject matter experts when it comes to finding scuds in deserts. It was a skill we developed during the first Gulf War, right? As Saddam began firing scuds into Israel, uh, in order to keep Israel out of the war, because that would have broken up the Arab coalition, we had to go hunt scuds in the western desert of of Iraq, and we did it. Um, we're now doing that for the Saudis. The Saudis are doing the strikes, but American special forces are doing the lazing. They're doing the targeting. They're finding both with uh, with drones uh, and with feet on the ground, finding where the Houthis are firing the ballistic missiles so that the Saudis can hit them before they launch. New York Times broke this like it was some great revelation, like it requires congressional hearings or something on this. I don't quite get it. Um, up until 2015, American special forces, including Delta Force, were physically on the ground in Yemen on semi-permanent bases. They moved forward from Djibouti because it saved a two-hour helicopter ride. Uh, we're, we're intimately familiar uh, with, with Yemen. So not, not a big, huge surprise, sir. Uh, all right, back next hour, the Netanyahu PowerPoint presentation. Who was it aimed for? What was the point? We'll get to that. Right after this, it is uh, Dark Secret Place. One more hour. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Hour number two, the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. Well, earlier this week, and it's it's been a big week. It's been a very busy week. I, I get it. But do you all recall that earlier this week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did a uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Time live address. This was while the uh, president, President Trump, was meeting with the Nigerian president. <clears throat> and um, Trump said that he did actually catch part of the uh, live PowerPoint presentation by Benjamin Netanyahu. But this was 8 p.m. Tel Aviv time. He went live with what, what was supposed to be uh, just a, a, a groundbreaking, earth-shattering revelation about Iran and its desire for nuclear weapons. Uh, here's a little bit of what Netanyahu said. God's explicit goal was creating nuclear weapons. This is an original Iranian presentation from these files. And here's the mission statement. 
design, produce, and test five warheads, each with 10 kiloton TNT yield for integration on a missile. You don't have to read Farsi to see 10 kilotons here. So these files conclusively prove that Iran is brazenly lying when it says it never had a nuclear weapons program. I want to give you uh, another example of Iran's. So Netanyahu said that Iran lied big time. First of all, the presentation had one uh, audience member that it was aimed at, and it was Donald Trump. Uh, that was the purpose of the PowerPoint. Um, and that was the purpose of Netanyahu speaking Trump talk by saying Iran lied big time. Uh, what Netanyahu revealed was that Mossad under, uh, successfully underwent an operation whereby they physically got their hands on Iranian nuclear archives, which uh, they claim were warehoused in a uh, newly constructed building in a suburb of Tehran. Um, and that the purpose of the building was to hide the Iranian nuclear archives so that if the, uh, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action from 2015, uh, it had an inspection regime in it. And part of the inspection was an inspection of uh, archival history of the Iranian nuclear program. Well, this way the Iranians can say, well, you can look anywhere you want. But you're not going to find anything because we never had such a program. Um, and this is where the Iranian foreign minister, uh, the Iranian president, and the supreme leader, the, the real power in uh, Iran is the supreme leader and the Skiri, the supreme council of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And it has been fairly crystal clear for 20 years that Iran has been uh, researching and building and experimenting uh, with the, <clears throat> the enrichment of uranium, uh, the manufacture, the mass production of nuclear warheads, and the technology to make nuclear warheads. And this has really not been a secret to, to anyone. It's just that finding the actual red-handed proof is what the Iranians uh, sought to hide. Because, uh, like I say, uh, 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 Foreign Minister uh, Zarif, uh, President Rouhani uh, and the Supreme Leader have all said, no, um, we have never had a nuclear program, a nuclear bomb program, which is ridiculous on the face of it. Uh, the, uh, the Israelis are absolutely correct about that. The, the Iranians claiming that they never had such a program uh, is ludicrous. And, and what the Israelis proved with this archive was that the Iranians have had a pretty all-encompassing nuclear research program uh, going back at least 20 years. Now, in the big picture, what Netanyahu was proving retroactively was that you can't trust the Iranians, yet the, uh, the world did with the, uh, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, and that the U.S. was so blinded, was smelling the barn on a uh, denuclearization deal with Iran uh, that, that uh, Secretary of State John Kerry and President Barack Obama uh, were settling for not even a decent deal, but a horrible deal. And there's lots of people who say that. There's others, there's defenders of the JCPOA 
who uh, their best defense, and this is a lot of people who are leg humping Obama and trying to save his legacy, because this, um, uh, if if it turns out that Iran is doing what most most intelligence agencies suspect, and that is continuing a parallel secret nuclear program, then Obama and John Kerry are going to look pretty moronic, as if they they could look more moronic over this deal. But uh, what what the Iranians uh, had said in 2015. Uh, was, well, no, we never had that program. Well, so the defenders of Obama are saying, well, this is not really a surprise. I mean, after all, that's why we did the JCPOA. Uh, and they're, they're claiming to be doing a turnaround sick burn on Netanyahu by saying, you know what, his PowerPoint demonstration really only proved the point of why we uh, did that deal in 2015, because we knew they had a nuclear weapons program. But they're ignoring the uh, the lead here. They're burying Netanyahu's lead, which is that the Iranians lied before they ever put a signature on that plan. They lied. And the United States and Secretary of State John Kerry knew they were lying, but accepted the lie that they never had a nuclear program. And then... Uh, put their signatures on that deal, knowing full well that that the very foundation of the deal was uh, was corrupt because the Iranians weren't telling the truth at a time when it benefited them to tell the truth. But they bluffed one last time and they said, well, uh, maybe we can lie one last time and we'll uh, we'll ramrod this thing through. Here, here's the deal <clears throat> for the Iranians. It was no harm, no foul, because there was no penalty in lying. Uh, there also, though, there was no bonus. There was nothing in it for them to come clean. It's not like the money, the billions, the hundreds of billions that we freed up of Iranian money that had been stuck for 30 years. It's not like they were getting a bonus for telling the truth. They knew that. And so they said, ah, you know what? Let's not give the West a gift of knowing what our progress is. Let's go ahead and lie about this and see if they buy it. So they had to declare to the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, whether or not they had a nuclear program. The IAEA knew they did, and they were ready to read the archive. So when the Iranians said, nope, we never had one, uh, never did, never intended to, and we were only enriching uranium for medical isotopes, the IAEA did not have the authority to say, BS, take us to Natanz, the reactor there, take us to... Tehran University. Take us to all the places where we know you were doing nuclear bomb research. Um, more on this here in uh, just a second. There is a op-ed in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz that points out something kind of embarrassing for Israel. I'll tell you what that is when we come back. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here. Until midnight with uh, the entire world melting down. And so Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, with a live presentation uh, with an audience of one in the Oval Office, making the case convincingly that the Iranians have had a nuclear bomb program all along and that they lied uh, to uh, uh, bamboozle the, the Western world, France, Germany, uh, Britain, the U.N., of course, the U.S. <clears throat> into believing that their intentions were pure in joining or signing the uh, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which again 
is not a uh, official treaty. The U.S. it's it's in the United States Constitution uh, in Article One that one of the powers of the U.S. Senate is to actually ratify treaties with foreign powers, and this was without a doubt a uh, a binding treaty with a foreign power, and it was never approved by the Senate. So. Uh, if President Trump w- wants to overturn the thing, he can do it with a stroke of a pen, literally. I mean, in other words, pull the U.S. out of it. And I was talking with Bill Handel on Tuesday about this, and he said, well, yeah, but this would ruin American credibility. Uh, in, in fact, I would say the opposite. I would say it would enhance American credibility, and it would reinforce the fact that we don't have a treaty with you. Whoever you are, uh, the Soviet Union, whoever you are, if the Senate doesn't ratify it, it's not a treaty, and you should not count on it. Um, all of the treaties that we had with the Soviet Union, uh, the Atmospheric Test Ban, uh, SALT-1, SALT-2, the START Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, INF, all of those were approved by the U.S. Senate. That's the purpose of the Senate doing that. It was the Obama administration doing something uh, fairly short-sighted and reckless that might come back and bite them in the ass. Because here's the thing, Trump couldn't touch it if Obama had gone to the U.S. Senate and said, ratify this treaty. But he knew that they weren't going to ratify this treaty uh, because of John McCain, for one thing, because John McCain saw right through the Iranians. But so so here are the Iranians lying about having a nuclear weapons program. Then here's Netanyahu showing conclusively uh, that uh, either they had a nuclear weapons program or they had a pretty damn good movie set looking like a nuclear weapons program. Uh, how the Mossad did this, according to a Kuwaiti newspaper, uh, is that they uh, enlisted, um, and, and Mossad has, it's is not really a, a mystery, but Mossad obviously has uh, a lot of Persian Jews in, uh, in their ranks. Uh, and what are those? Well, uh, after the Shah was deposed, a lot of uh, uh, the the Jewish faith Persian people left Iran. There's a probably the largest expatriate community outside of Israel of Persian Jews is in Encino and Sherman Oaks uh, and uh, in the uh, in the West Valley. There are Persian synagogues there. And obviously these are people who are native speakers of Farsi, native colloquial speakers of Farsi. Uh, many of them emigrated to Israel in in the early 80s, um, and they uh, obviously are a absolute ace up the sleeve of Mossad. So the Mossad have been operating in Tehran for decades. In fact, Mossad was busy assassinating Iranian uh, nuclear engineer professors and things like that. Uh, there, there was a string of assassinations that happened in Tehran uh, that had the effect of having a lot of people decide not to major or try to get their PhD in nuclear engineering because enough uh, senior lecturers and academics who were some of the elite of the Iranian nuclear uh, infra- academic infrastructure were getting blown up at bus stops and the like. And this is being done by Mossad agents uh, who were native Farsi speakers with a intimate knowledge of, of Tehran. So that's how Mossad did it. This is something that they're uniquely capable of doing, uh, you know, because of that. And you know who else is uniquely capable of doing this uh, is the United States because of all of the Iranians, uh, the the Iranian diaspora that happened after the Shah left uh, landed pretty hard here in California. And and in fact, uh, let me just give you a heads up on this. Um, A a career special forces guy 
who's now retired, has a book coming out, and he is an Iranian-American. And uh, he has some pretty amazing stories to tell. We'll have him on the air uh, real soon when, when he's ready to pimp the book here in the, in the next couple of weeks. But So what Mossad pulled off was pretty amazing. Um, but also it was uniquely in their wheelhouse to do this, uh, to both develop the information, because as Netanyahu said, only a handful of Iranians knew where this was and a handful of Israelis. So uh, apparently the effect in Tehran is that people are pissed and heads are going to roll. Um, there was an uncomfortable op-ed in Haaretz, one of the uh, big daily newspapers in Israel, and it points out something that most everyone has known. In the same way that a lot of defenders of the nuclear deal said, well, this is not a surprise. Netanyahu really served up a nothing burger. Everybody knew this, um, but they're sort of avoiding the fact that the Iranians lied about it uh, and said they never had a nuclear program. If you knew it, why didn't you call them on it? But anyway, the embarrassing fact is this. Israel has nuclear weapons. Israel's never acknowledged having nuclear weapons, but everybody in the world knows that Israel has nuclear weapons. Most importantly, Israel's most sworn enemies know that Israel has nuclear weapons. Iran is aware that, that Israel has nuclear weapons. The surrounding Arab states are aware that Israel has nuclear weapons. The Egyptians know this. The Saudis know this. Everybody knows this. And they also know that there's only one scenario where the Iranians, probably where the Israelis, use nuclear weapons. And, it's, and it is this. If you threaten the existence of Israel, you're going to learn the hard way that they have nuclear weapons. So there's that. Uh, all right. We'll, we are a couple of weeks away from, uh, apparently it's May 12th that uh, Trump is going to make his decision about the, uh, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. My, my sense is that he's going to kick this can down the road because he's going to be distracted with the, uh, the Korea meeting. All right, when we come back, um, the, uh, the old U.S.-Russian submarine game is heating up, and that means we're going back to an old Cold War base. I'll tell you about that right after this. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. Uh, have you ever been to Iceland? If you have, then you have discovered a, a pretty amazing unknown corner of the world. Uh, it, it, it is, uh, of course, the legendarily named Iceland uh, to, uh, by Eric the Red to uh, make possible settlers avoid it. And Greenland was named Greenland to make people go there. Well, Iceland during the uh, Cold War was, was key. It was absolutely key. Iceland is the oldest parliament in Europe. Uh, it's also a NATO member. And oh, by the way, they don't have a military. Um, but the piece of ocean between Greenland, Iceland, and the United Kingdom, uh, if you're a Tom Clancy reader, then you know it as the GI-UK gap. And this was a key choke point for uh, any Cold War action with the Warsaw Pact and NATO, that the, uh, the U.S. Navy would be the primary agent here and that in the event of general war in Western Europe, the United States had a forward strategy where the U.S. Navy would surge into the Arctic Ocean and prevent the Russians from breaking out of the GIUK gap. Because, just like World War II, a uh, general land war in Western Europe would not be over in 72 hours. It would probably be, would have gone for weeks or months, and the United States would have had to use heavy lift ships to convoy across the Atlantic with armor and replacements and things like that. 
So we had to choke up. We had to bottle up the Russian uh, submarine fleet. So there is a, a, a very, very key base at Iceland. We, it was uh, manned by the U.S. Navy for some 50 years, uh, starting in World War II and ending in 2006 at uh, one of the two major cities in Iceland called Keflavik. There is a Reykjavik, which is the capital, and then Keflavik on the uh, southern part of the island of Iceland. And there were 3,000 Americans there. It was an accompanied tour. So the total American footprint on Iceland was at some with contractors, families, uh, at American schools, PXs, the whole thing. Total American footprint was about 8,000. Total of about 8,000 Americans, 3,000 of them in uniform, usually U.S. Navy. So we had a pretty big footprint on a, on a pretty small island. And uh, as, as odd as the Icelandic people are, um, and 90% of them, by the way, believe in trolls. And they're not kidding. They really do believe in trolls. But they're really, really cool people. But one of the weird things about them is, yeah, you could call them sort of pacifistic and they didn't have a military and the whole thing. But you know what? They loved us. They loved us at that base. They loved the U.S. Navy at Keflavik. In fact, they loved us so much that when we shut the base down in 2006, we had to negotiate leave. The, uh, the Icelandic government, uh, the, the Landrad or whatever it's called, <clears throat> they, it wasn't just the paychecks. Though there were, there were hundreds of Icelandic people who worked uh, on the U.S. Navy base, um, but it was the prestige. It was having, it was hosting an American base of such import. Uh, and so we had to negotiate with the people of Iceland to close the base. We did what we did in Germany. We picked up the soil and shipped it to Richland, Washington, and buried it, you know, and the whole thing, and took all of our waste and uh, and the whole deal. Um, but they were sad to see us go. I mean, they liked us. The Icelandic people really, really liked us. Um, and so the phone was picked up. The phone rang about a week ago in Iceland, and it was uh, the U.S. Navy calling back, saying, um, or rather, I should say the phone rang in 2014. Um, and the call was, Hey, we want to look at reopening Keflavik uh, and how much would it cost? Well, so the, the budget has been set aside. The U S Navy is going to pay millions and reopen Keflavik. Uh, but this time it won't be P three Orions. It'll be the new P eight Poseidon, which is really a seven thirty seven. So the U S Navy is going back to Keflavik and this represents NATO's general awareness that the Cold War is back on. And one of the bits of the Cold War that really never went away was the U.S. Navy versus Russian submarines, formerly Soviet submarines, now Russian submarines. But things are way different now in 2018. The difference is that uh, Putin has been pouring money into the Russian Navy, and he's, uh, he has effects. Um, he has visible progress that they have been putting on display in the Eastern Mediterranean. And um, you see... There was a time that the only people who could launch cruise missiles from submarines were the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy. Well, the Russians have been displaying for the past two years that they can uh, fire precision uh, supersonic cruise missiles from submarines in the Mediterranean, and they can consistently hit their targets. At least we assume it's their target. They released the video, and it, they, it hit a building. Um, and so the, the difference between now... And the, the Cold War, and this is according to a Icelandic source. I have to, I have to read this uh, directly. 
The Russian Navy of today is not the Soviet Navy. It is far smaller, has far fewer ships and submarines. On the other hand, it is far more sophisticated and far more skilled than it was during the, the Cold War. And it has added new capabilities, including launching cruise missiles, which they have shown repeatedly off the coast of Syria. This is from uh, a uh, Icelandic defense official. So the people of Iceland want us back uh, because uh, they see the, uh, the, the increased presence of the uh, Soviet submarine fleet in the northern Atlantic, also the Mediterranean. Uh, and then for all intents and purposes, uh, Sweden, though still a neutral country, is as integrated to NATO as you can possibly be without actually being a NATO member. For that matter, so is Finland. And for that matter, so is Austria. Those three countries are not members of NATO officially, but they may as well be. Um, as we speak, a Swedish electronic warfare uh, aircraft, a, a modified Gulfstream, uh, Gulfstream 5, is flying out of Crete, flying out of the RAF base at Akrotiri, Crete, and it's hoovering up every Russian anti-aircraft signal it can get in Syria. Uh, the Swedes are as close, as, as much of a de facto member of NATO as anyone else. And they are effectively flying combat practice missions right now in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, this is not, 10 years ago, this would have caused demonstrations in the streets in Stockholm. Uh, the difference is that the, uh, the Swedes are seeing across the Baltic the same thing that the Finns and the Estonians and the Lithuanians and Latvians are seeing. They're seeing a very aggressive uh, and improved Russian military, a smaller, more capable Russian military that relies on a new kind of hybrid warfare uh, that begins with internal agitation, with uh, ethnic Russians in Estonia doing what they did in Crimea and uh, suddenly being really well-armed and organized and taking over police stations or towns along the border. The, the Swedes see this. They see what Putin is doing, uh, and they want to be prepared, not, not to sit out uh, you know, a, a large Warsaw Pact NATO war, but rather to see these small little baby bites, these piranha bites that, that Putin is doing instead of large shark bites. So uh, Keflavik is opening. If you served in the U.S. Navy at Keflavik, I guarantee you probably have really, really good memories of it. And why wouldn't you? Especially if you were a single guy, wink, wink. Anyway, Keflavik is back on the menu. Uh, and I highly recommend it. If you're a squid out there, if you're in the U.S. Navy and you can find your way to Keflavik for two or three years, uh, definitely do it. All right, back right after this. Uh, Anti-aircraft in the South China Sea. Yes, uh, the, the, the fake islands are back in the news again. The Chinese are very quietly uh, armoring those things like little aircraft carriers. Back in a minute. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here. One more time, KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM, 640 more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here uh, one last time. And tomorrow, of course, Super Hyperlocal Sunday at 8 p.m. All the news uh, for you to win your Monday. Everything that happened here in the Southland all weekend long. Uh, there was a, a funny Twitter spat today between, or rather uh, day before yesterday, between the British ambassador to the United States and the French ambassador to the U.S. Uh, apparently, the British uh, were uh, participating in a White House History Week, the History Week Symposium, with, I guess, a presentation on uh, the uh, British and Irish uh, White House contributions, including um, Scottish stonemasons. So the <clears throat> British ambassador said this. 
He said, quote, this morning I kicked off the White House History Symposium on the UK and Ireland in the White House. From Scottish stonemasons to English architects, the UK played an invaluable role in the design of this iconic structure. And the French ambassador replied, and in the burning of it in 1815. If you don't know that, the original White House was burned down by the British when they overran Washington, D.C. But uh, the French ambassador got the date wrong. Uh, so the British ambassador replied to him and said, I was wondering who would be first to say that. But Gerard, unusually, your history is a little inaccurate. It was 1814. Something else happened in 1815. Dot, dot, dot. Close quote. So if you, if you know your Waterloo history, you know what he was saying there. Uh, the, the White House was burned down in 1814. Uh, and uh, Napoleon's final defeat was in 1815. So anyway, I just point that out because it was kind of funny. Uh, in the South China Sea, the uh, Chinese uh, evidently have very quietly, and why wouldn't it be quiet, um, they have deployed uh, batteries of anti-surface cruise missiles, their uh, YJ-12B. Uh, this this um, uh, is a super upgrade of, a, of a, a silkworm missile. It began as a silkworm missile 30 years ago, but the Chinese have uh, super upgraded it. With all the stolen technology that they probably got from your company, whoever you are in the high-tech industry in Monrovia or wherever it is you work. But thanks to you, the Chinese have uh, uh, hypersonic, uh, ultra-accurate anti-ship cruise missiles, and they have uh, based them on their fake islands at uh, Mischief Reef, Fiery Cross Reef, and Subi Reef. Also, uh, the uh, uh, very capable Chinese service air missile system, the HQ-9 SAM missile system, has been in place here for about a year. And so uh, the Chinese effectively can cover from the Philippines to Vietnam. Uh, they can threaten enemy aircraft or, or aircraft they deem hostile, uh, as well as threaten enemy service combatants um, anywhere between Vietnam and, uh, and the Philippines and, and uh, Brunei and northern Australia. And the more they do this uh, uh, and without having to account for it uh, or uh, having to face sanctions for just creating islands in the middle of nowhere, um, the more permanent this becomes. Because we're coming up now on the fifth year anniversary of the Chinese uh, finalizing the largest of these islands, uh, putting in the two mile long runway uh, putting permanent party-based personnel, uh, Chinese Navy and Air Force personnel, rotating fighter aircraft out of there. So for all intents and purposes, the Chinese um, have <clears throat> laid claim to these three major islands that they made themselves. Uh, they now have uh, a potential military uh, superiority in the air and on the surface in a very wide swath in the South China Sea. And the U.S. Navy, the Royal Navy, uh, even the Vietnamese keep doing these freedom of navigation exercises through the South China Sea, and the Chinese keep protesting. Um, one of these days, when the Chinese feel aggressive enough that they can back it up, they will say that you can't fly through the South, fly over the South China Sea, or you cannot sail through the South China Sea without Chinese permission because they are Chinese territorial waters. And this would be exactly like. Uh, you know, sailing between Catalina Island and Los Angeles. 
Um, that's what they'll claim this is because, of course, those are American territorial waters and the Chinese can't sail their carrier between Catalina and the coast of California. Um, but the, uh, the Chinese now have precedent. Uh, they, they built the islands. They've been manning the islands. And, and in maritime law, in the, in the law of the sea, it almost comes down to uh, salvage, where if, if um, it doesn't go contested, if it goes uncontested, the longer it goes uncontested, um, the more sure thing it is, even though the Chinese lost in an international tribunal to the Philippines. Two years ago, they lost a UN judgment that said that the Chinese have absolutely no legal right to be occupying Philippine territory uh, in, um, on, a, uh, on a reef uh, to the west of the Philippines. But the Philippines have absolutely no way to back that up. I mean, none whatsoever. Uh, so anyway, that's the situation in the South China Sea. Uh, that's the, uh, the Chinese long-term goal here is for it to be a long-term goal. The Chinese don't want this done in a year. Well, they know that 10 years down the road, Nobody is going to be beating on this drum. If we haven't done it now, we're not going to do it in 10 years. And the, the Chinese uh, have all the patience in the world. I mean, they waited 3,000 years for this. So what's 10 more years, right? Uh, all right, that's the Dark Secret Place for your Cinco de Mayo of 2018. Back tomorrow at 8 p.m. for the uh, for Super Hyper Local Sunday. Brian Suits out. <clears throat> this uh, podcast will be up. And this will continue to be the most downloaded podcast on all of KFI. Uh, KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk.